Next order of business is roll call members. Please indicate your presence when the machine is open. If all the members voted, Tyler, roll. It's the end of another week. Today went a little bit longer uh, because of just the sheer volume of amendments. Uh, so we're going to, we'll see how this goes. Usually, you know, we're 20, 25 ep- minute episodes, but we'll see how we're feeling here as we get through this. But I'm excited. I've got a great guest today who's got a lot of institutional knowledge on this building, on the House of Representatives, on the rules, uh, the perfect person to talk to going into these last two weeks of a legislative session. My guest is Matt Pierce. Matt, thanks for, at the end of a long day, spending some time with me. Well, thanks for inviting me on to be on the podcast. <laughs> well, we're ha- happy to have you. Um, Matt, could you start by just kind of talking about who you are, what district you represent, uh, you know, whatever you want to share so folks that are from Indianapolis or whatever might get a little bit of a better okay. picture of who you are. Yeah, I represent District 61, which is pretty much the uh, most of the city of Bloomington, including the Indiana University campus. So, you know, classic college town representation, uh, a blue island in the middle of the of the Red <laughs> Sea. Right. And uh, I've been first elected in 2002, and then um, there was a 10-year period before that where I worked on the House staff. So I've kind of, with the exception of about a three-and-a-half-year period, I've kind of been seeing things from one vantage point or another since December of 1988. Okay, so I, I, I'm not trying to point anything out other than I was two years old. Yes, I know. Believe me, I'm old. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> Social Security is within reach, and it's getting scary. What, what's the, kind of the biggest thing you've noticed going from staff that, all that time ago to now having served in legislature for as long as you have? Well, the interesting thing is when you're on staff, you always make fun of the members and you can't figure out why they can't remember things or they have to have like so much, you know, help just making sure stuff gets done. And what you don't appreciate as a staffer is just how many people come at a state representative or a state senator. I mean, you walk down the hall, you're, it's like a being in a pinball machine, you're going to bounce off like seven people on the way down the hall, different people wanting to talk to you about different things. And it's real easy just to be trying to deal with all these different people and different bills and stuff. It's easy to kind of forget things or have stuff drop. So that's where your staff hopefully comes in and helps keep you going. So that's uh, one thing. I thought that maybe I'd lost just some of your cognitive abilities automatically lost when you're elected to the legislature. (laughs) But I suspect it's just because the staffers don't have to worry about a lot of the other things that go on in a legislator's life. Speaking of lots of things happening, all kinds of information all at once, uh, this week was a great example of that today. I mean, there were, it looks like 58 amendments filed uh, today that we had to get through. This week also represented two deadlines, the committee report deadline and the second reading deadline. Um, what are the kind of implications for those two deadlines? What do they mean? What what happened this week? Yeah, so the, the Senate passed out a bunch of bills to the House, and then the process kind of repeats itself. So every committee chair in the House is looking at at these pile of Senate bills, which have passed the Senate, and some of them they look at and say, oh, I don't like these, and they just kill them on the spot by deciding not to give them a hearing. And then the other bills that begin to move through the process, they had to be through um, all the committees by Tuesday of this week. And then Thursday was the deadline to um, have any second reading amendment. So second reading is the um, stage where you any member of the House can offer an amendment to amend a bill on the floor of the House. And so th- so you naturally have a lot of work during that time because it's the last shot to do anything. you got to get all the bills done um, on that deadline day or they're dead. 
And then it's a little bit exacerbated this week because the Republicans kind of left a lot of their more controversial stuff till the end. And so things where particularly Democrats have a lot of opinions on how to improve the bills, that generates lots of men. And even the Republicans, they had their own members who had a lot of things they wanted to do, which didn't get done in committee. So that's what made it so busy with 58 amendments. What's interesting looking at this list of 58 amendments too is there there are several that don't get offered. So a member might have a, something drafted, be ready to make the argument, and then something might happen to uh, yeah, so keep that's, them from offering that's the That's the infamous caucus process. Yes. So apparently the majority party, of course, we don't get to go in the Republican caucus and see what they have to say amongst themselves, nor does the public. But um, it's become pretty apparent that what happens is they've developed a system where they kind of have their battles, their debate, their discussion behind closed doors in their caucus. And oftentimes, uh, the caucus will vote to say, we don't want you to offer that amendment. Most of the time, the members kind of cave in and say, okay, you don't want it, I won't do it. More and more, they're getting a few members who are like, I don't really care what you guys think, I'm going to offer my darn amendment, and then that makes it a little bit um, unpredictable. But usually what's happening is they're debating the amendments and voting on them in their caucus, and the stuff that doesn't pass in their caucus doesn't get a chance to come to the House floor and get offered and pass. So that's why you see things that get introduced, and they're never actually called down for a vote. Then you have other things where, oh, somebody else offered the same amendment, and maybe they're in a better position to get it passed, so it's one person yields to the other. Some people introduce amendments just to kind of make a point, you know, kind of get somebody's attention. They don't really intend to offer it. So there there are lots of situations where stuff gets introduced and then never actually offered on the House floor. Today was actually a really interesting day for procedure and whatnot because you also see people withdraw their amendments. So a couple times today you'd see someone get up, offer the ideas. They want to have people speak to those issues really quickly, but then they withdraw the amendment because they know it's either going to get called on a rule violation, which we've talked about in the past, you know, bill pending, uh, germaneness, uh, or, you know, their caucus doesn't want to get a vote on the board, so they might withdraw the amendment as well. But something else interesting that happened today, um, as we were talking about some of these amendments, and I, we don't need to really even get into the, the the substance of the amendment, but there was a motion on the floor to suspend the rule, suspend Rule 118 um, on uh, bill pending, which requires a constitutional majority on second. Right. So, Matt, what I just said, I think most people wouldn't understand anything what right. I just said. So can you break it down? Yeah, so a constitutional majority is a fancy way of saying 51 votes or one more than half. So not just not just a majority that people happen to be in the chamber, but you have to ha- actually have 51 out of 100. Um, and so Rule 8 in the rules book provides a mechanism where any member could basically say, like, hey, let's just suspend this rule and do something that, you know, that rule would normally prevent. So if 51 people say, yeah, that's a good idea, we second that motion, then you can vote on the actual motion itself, and you need two-thirds of the members, or 67 out of 100 people, have to vote and say, yes, I want to suspend Rule 118, the bill pending rule, so that I can go ahead and vote on this amendment that's being offered. And so you can see it's a really high bar. Basically, you either have to have, when you have a supermajority, which has 70 votes on their own, then they can kind of decide on their own. The rule was really designed back in different days when a large majority was like 55. And so what was normally intended is that if both sides agreed that for efficiency on something that everyone agreed upon, you could go ahead and suspend the rule so it wouldn't get in the way and just move something along. And um, it, it's a little bit different now that we have the, we've had these super majorities for the last um, 10 years or so. 
you know, I got to tell you, so I've been rules ranking member just this session, which I've talked about on the podcast before. You're the, probably know the rules better than anybody else in the building. Um, I really thought on the last amendment today, they might call it down and I might get my first rules victory, but they <laughs> failed to call down the amendment. So I, you know, I guess, I guess I'm not going to get my win this year once this is the last chance. Next week, uh, we'll start with conference committees. The rules committee will likely start meeting next week. Um, let's start with conference committees. Uh, what do people need to know about that process and what the role of those committees are? Yeah. So uh, when the bills get sent from the House over to the Senate, send it over to the House. So when they're in the second chamber, oftentimes those bills are amended. And you can't send the governor two versions of the same bill and tell him pick which one he might like to sign or veto. You have to send one bill that has passed each house in the exact same form right down to every comma and period. And so what happens then is when you, when a bill comes back, say in our case from the Senate, the author of the bill has to look at it and see what amendments have been um, added to that bill. If no amendments were added and it's the same exact form, it passes the Senate in the same exact form as the House, then it just goes right to the governor and you're done. When it comes back, the author of the bill has a decision to make. They can either look at the Senate amendments and say, okay, these all look fine by me, no big deal. I'm going to file a motion to concur or agree with the Senate. And then the House has to vote to say, yep, we rubber stamp approve what the Senate did in the way they changed the bill. If that passes, off to the governor it goes for his consideration. If the author looks at the bill and says, like, these are horrible amendments, or, you know, I'd like to tweak this language, or in some cases, I've got another great idea that I want to get into this bill that I hadn't been able to get in someplace else, so I'm going to dissent and demand a conference committee. So when that happens, and that's voted on by the full House, when that happens, then the Speaker of the House appoints the conferees. Now, by tradition, the Speaker of the House accepts the recommendations of the minority leader for the Democrats in this case. So the Democratic leaders say, here are the two Democrats, or the actually the, let me get this straight, it's one from each caucus. So we're going to have one Democrat and one Republican from the House, and then there's going to be one senator Democrat and one Republican senator. That gives you four members of the conference committee. Those four people are supposed to sit down and debate amongst themselves how that bill should read. And if they can come to an agreement on exactly how to make the bill all the same, so they could put brand new stuff in there. Now, we've got this, it's not a rule, but it's a tradition of the House that you're not supposed to put new stuff in a conference committee report that's never passed one House or the other. Now, that doesn't keep it from happening, but we claim we don't like to do that. But there's no formal rule against it. So sometimes that happens. You get a brand new thing pops up, just gets put in there, surprises everybody. Normally, what you're supposed to be doing is just dealing with the subject matter in the bill, and you, you get it the way you want. And so if all four members agree, and they have to, then they sign the conference committee report, and then both the House and the Senate have to vote to approve the conference committee report. If they do that, then that version of the bill goes down to the governor for his signature or veto. Now, the thing that a lot of people probably don't understand on the outside, because you'd say like, oh, wow, that means that you have to have bipartisan compromise because the Democrats and Republicans have equal voting power in these committees. Well, there's another ability of the speaker to remove conferees. And so what traditionally happens on controversial bills or bills where there's a big difference in approach between Democrats and Republicans is eventually the 
Republican Speaker and the Republican um, President Pro Tem of the Senate will both remove the Democrats and replace them with Republicans. And then you'll have a conference committee with all Republicans, and they will just sign the bill in the way that the Republicans would like it to read. So what's interesting about this, too, is that you mentioned the idea is that those four individuals, along with some advisors, would discuss and figure out a way to get right. this all done. You want me to tell you where advisors came from? Because that's a hilarious story. Yeah, please. Right? Because advisors are not mentioned in the rules anywhere. This goes back um, probably 25 years to when um, Mike Phillips was the speaker. And there was a particular bill in which two Democrats were viciously fighting to be the conferee. And so the speaker was kind of trying to figure out, like, how do I deal with this? Because if whoever I choose, the other person is really going to be mad at me because I didn't make them the conferee on this bill. And so someone came up with this idea of like, oh, we'll just have advisors. So we went to one person and said, congratulations, you're the conferee. And he went to the other person who was disappointed about not being a conferee and says, like, you have been made an advisor to this conference committee. Okay. And there, magically, advisors were born. They have no place in the rules, just kind of made up one year, and it is stuck 25 years later. And so I always laugh when I hear the, the advisors have been appointed, because there's really nothing in the rules that says you have to even pay attention to the advisors. But I guess they offer free unwanted advice. The next, the next piece of this is there's also nothing in the rules that you have to pay attention to the minority who are your conferees. So right. you mentioned you can be removed. But I mean, I, when I served on conferees as a conferee in my first couple sessions, um, I was often completely in the dark about what was happening with the bill, and I was like mm-hmm. having to go around and fight to get conference committee report versions along the way. Um, you want to speak to that at all? That it's yeah, the process this is, is kind of this imbalanced. Is kind of, yeah, this is an unfortunate part when you know that you can just have your speaker remove the Democrat if they're not, um, you know, playing nice with the Republicans. You also know that you don't really have to bring them along. So, you know, sometimes what will happen is the two Republican conferees from the House and the Senate will just sit down and they'll write the bill the way they want in a conference committee, and then they'll just kind of present it to the Democrat. And if the Democrat's like, what the heck, I didn't have anything to do with negotiating this, and I don't like these sections and that section, and, uh, and so I don't want to sign this unless you fix it, then they just go to the Speaker, they take the Democrat off, put a a compliant Republican on, and they quickly signed the conference report. Now, I actually had an experience, which I think is a one-of-a-kind of experience never in the history of the legislature. I was actually removed from a conference committee after I signed it. And that was kind of a funny, funny story, because what happened there is there was a brand-new member, a freshman, who had never chaired a conference committee before. So they're brand new, never been through the process before, and they, nobody sent them the memo that you're not supposed to deal with the other party or at least pay much attention to them. Sure. So we sat down and negotiated this conference report, and we put it together, and the Senate Republican lost his mind that this guy was doing with Democrats. And he's like, we're not doing this, right? Because he didn't want to have to deal with these Democrat ideas. And so I, I had already signed the report, and he got me removed so they could get rid of everything that I had negotiated and just do whatever the Senate Republican wanted. So I thought that was that was like a unique situation to be removed for not signing a report when you sign the report. You when you actually sign the report. So, yeah. The other thing that's going to happen next week, as I mentioned, is that the Rules Committee will actually start meeting. Um, what happened? So this, this is a committee that up to this point has not met. Uh, most of the rules activity happens between the ranking minority member and the rules chairman, and then obviously in conversations and caucus and whatnot, and uh, and happens on the floor. What happens when the rules committee actually starts meeting next week? Yeah, the in the first 
two-thirds of the legislature. The Rules Committee's um, job is to be a place for bills to go and die. So if your bill gets assigned to the Rules Committee, that's like the Speaker of the House saying, this bill is so horrible that I don't want even anybody to think about actually moving this bill. And so the Rules Committee chair knows that you don't hear any bills in Rules Committee. So they never have a committee meeting. Now, every now and again, there's an exception to that. There might be like a resolution that's kind of substantive that might come through there. Occasionally, they might hear a bill, but it's pretty much your bill goes to rules. It's like, I just got the kiss of death on this thing. On the first episode, Mitch Gore was here and one of his bills had gotten signed to rules. There you go. We should have had a moment of silence for those. Yes, those bills. exactly right. Because it's like, it's not coming out of there. You are, you are dead. Do not pass go. Um, but then the rules committee comes to life at the end because the there used to be a window after getting done with all of the bills from the other chamber. So you get past the third reading deadline in the second house. You used to have a number of days where you could get a conference committee signed and voted on by the house without going through the rules committee. And the idea was that when you get to the end of the process and things are happening very quickly, the Rules Committee should be a second set of eyes on the conference report to make sure that things are done properly, that maybe someone's not sneaking by something that hasn't passed either house, and you know, just kind of raise general um, issues. In, uh, I think it was about 1995, maybe a little bit later, they um, changed the rules so that the deadline to have to go to rules is the same deadline as third reading in the second house. So essentially what that means is you always have to go to rules committee now. And so you can get a conference committee report signed, take it up to rules committee, and if rules committee refuses to vote to waive the rules, right? So it's going to say, okay, the deadline passed to vote on conference committee reports last week, but we like this bill good enough. We will recommend to the chamber that they vote to... Um, waive that rule for this particular conference committee report. And then, and so there's two rules that matter. One is this deadline of having the conference report through by a certain date, which nobody ever makes because it's the same day as doing the second house bills and third reading. Then the second thing is every bill is supposed to be on a member's desk for 24 hours. So the theory is you're supposed to have 24 hours to look at every conference report before you sign it. But when you get down to those last days, because we have a statutory requirement in the law that we have to be done by April 29th. So if you sign your committee reports in the morning of April 29th, you don't have 24 hours for it to sit around. So you have to go to rules committee and get them to collapse that rule. And so usually you'll have 24 hours, then you wave that down to 12, then 12 can become eight, eight can become four two hours. By the end of it, it's like 10 o'clock at night in the last day. It's a 15-minute rule. If it sits on the desk for 15 minutes, we're good with it. And so that's the real crucial role that the Rules Committee plays. So I'm kind of imagining, you know, in Austin Powers, when Dr. Evil has this lever that the chair flips back and goes and the person disappears, it's almost like the Rules Committee has the power at the end here to pull that lever on a bill. Um, I mean, does do bills, a lot of bills die in the Rules Committee? You know, actually not a whole lot, but what, what will happen more often is um, someone will look at it and say, hey, you've got a provision here, it's never passed either house, and, and because we, the majority, don't like it or 
it's not important enough to just like get that out of there. We'll actually follow our tradition of not letting it. So it's like you got to go back and do another conference report with that out of there. Sometimes we'll discover that there's actually some kind of weird drafting or some kind of error has been made or something doesn't quite read right. And we'll say, hey, you got to go back and get that fixed. So most often it's just like, hey, you got to go back and fix something and then come back and try again. And so the other debate that goes on too then, it's like, what happens if you're a member of the rules committee and you have a bill that you actually think is horrible public policy? I always vote against them if I think it's horrible public policy because I just want to kill them. The chair of the committee will always point out in rules committee, we are not voting on the substance of the bill. We are merely voting upon the procedures of whether or not the rules should be waived. Some people like to make that argument that rules is just all about the rules and it's not about the substance of the bill. But for me, it's often about the substance of the bill. Well, I think it, my last question is really a segue from that, which is as the, the new ranking member who just today finally figured out how that job works for session as we wrapped up second reading, What's your advice going into rules next week for me? Um, you got to read every conference report before it gets to committee. And so this is going to be like very challenging because it's like um, Lucy, that old episode, of I Love Lucy and the candy conveyor belt, right? So they're going to start yeah. coming out and you can start wrapping those chocolates. And then it just keeps getting faster and faster and faster. And you're in that last day and it's like, how am I going to read these conference reports? And you just got to become like a speed reader. You got to kind of get used to l knowing what to look for in the reports. You don't have much time. And then if you haven't had a chance to really read it like you want, then you got to ask a lot of questions to make sure you really know what's going on there. But that's the hardest part about being on rules committee. It's just, it's like a waterfall of bills landing on your head and you just got to read them and try to figure out what's in them. And then um, hopefully catch um, bad stuff or tricky stuff that's happening. And on the record, you'll have my back the entire time. <laughs> absolutely, okay. absolutely. Well, Matt, thanks. I know it's been a really long day at the end of a very long week. And from what you just said about rules, next week is going to be... Actually, I hope that if my wife is listening, she heard Matt say <laughs> that uh, if I'm looking tired and worn down and unavailable to do my laundry and clean yes. up the house, it is because rules is a really Yes, the, the at-home to-do list must be delayed. Yeah. Can we suspend the rules on me having to do all of that for two weeks? Natalie Clayton, I hope you're listening. So, Matt, thank you so much. Uh, have a safe drive home. And we'll see everybody next week for one of our last few episodes. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great weekend.